So if we can, uh, if we can enter into prayer, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity here at the end of 2023 to stop, reflect, uh, and to look forward uh, into the next year uh, as we can uh, search for ways to uh, uh, live uh, in your will and to give you glory. We do pray for our brother Steve as he recovers from his stroke and, uh, and other issues and that we can um, continue to uphold the Carlsons to support them, to love them, to care for them. And we pray for Steve's uh, recovery, and we praise you for the miracles that have happened so far. Uh, we pray for Tim as he's out at uh, Boron Baptist, that uh, his message can be uplifting and encouraging and inspiring uh, to the saints there at Boron Baptist. Be with us this morning as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, it's going to be 2024 tomorrow. It's, uh, for a guy born in the middle 1900s, yes, think about it, um, that, that's a strange thought, 2024. When I was growing up, 2024 sounded so far into the future. Uh, some of you may be aware of uh, the Jetsons TV show. It was, uh, it was an animated uh, cartoon on TV. Um, the Jetsons were this futuristic family. They had flying cars. They had robots that cleaned their houses. And they had telephones that you could look at each other on a screen this big that sat on your desk. So they got like almost everything right. The Jetsons was set in the year 2062. George Jetson was 40 years old. George Jetson was born two years ago in 2022. George Jetson is entering the terrible twos right now someplace in America. That's how far into the future we are. We're catching up to TV cartoons. When we look forward, we always have the hope for a new year that it's going to bring good things. Uh, we're going to have peace, we're going to have prosperity, we're going to have happiness, love, joy, and we can always hope for these things. But the question becomes, can we do something? Is there a way that we can have a good year? What are the ways that we can do that? One of the questions is, are you living your life for Christ, or are you living your life for yourself? Uh, I have a couple verses here. I'm not, we're not going to; those aren't going to be up on the screen because they're real quick. But uh, if you can follow along, First Peter, chapter three, verse ten says, "For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit." So one of the first things we can do to have a great year is not do something. Have a great year. Don't do something. Don't speak evil. Don't speak deceit. Uh, speaking evil and deceit pollutes not only those around you. When you speak evil, you pollute the people around you. You affect them with that, with that evil, with that wickedness. But it pollutes yourself as well. You are affected by speaking evil 
and by speaking deceit. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 4 says, Look at the ships also. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. In this teaching, you're that great ship. Or if you want to think you're the pilot, go ahead and think you're the pilot. Um, but your tongue is what steers you. Your tongue is what drives your direction. So where does it steer you? If your tongue is this rudder, where is it steering you? And you as the ship's captain, where are you turning that to? In verse 7 of James 3, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So how am I doing so far? I've insulted you. I've called you evil, deceitful, and your tongue is poison. So, Happy New Year. <laughs> get, you get better. You get better. Here. Um, so to refrain from speaking evil is something we can do to have a good year. Stop speaking evil. Stop speaking deceit. If you're always speaking evil, where does that come from? When, we're, when we always speak evil, when we're always speaking poorly of people, if we're always being deceitful in what we say, where do you think that comes from? Is it because I've got this crazy tongue in my mouth that does whatever it wants? Where does it come from my heart? It comes from our heart. It comes from our mind. Deceit doesn't just happen. We plan to deceive. Deception is a game plan. Football, there's the quarterback sneak. There's a draw play. There's all these things that are deceitful, but they don't just happen on the football field. They plan for them. Our problem is, as it says in verse 7, is no human being can tame the tongue. So what can we do? Proverbs 6, 16, um, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows the discord among brothers. Okay, it's not getting any better, is it? Uh, this, this isn't that inspirational New Year's message you were thinking it was, huh? Right about now, you're saying, Dan, you're not helping. This isn't how to have a great year. We'll get there, I promise. When we plan to deceive, when we purpose to lie, when our hearts are only looking to do evil, we're setting ourselves up for a bad year. We're setting ourselves up to not have a good year. 
The characteristics mentioned here are what purposes us for evil. This is laying out how to not have a good year. This is how to be evil. When we see those traits in people, we go, wow, I'm really impressed with that person. I really like them. I really trust them. No, we don't. We stay away. So how can we change that? How can we have a good year? Let's look back at 1 Peter 3 again, this time verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So did you notice this one little verse is a whole how-to self-help book? There's four actions in this little verse that will turn your year around. First, turn away from evil. This is a positive action. It's a conscious decision we make. True, sometimes we're the target of evil. Evil visits us. But very, very often, we're the ones who've made the conscious decision to do evil, to purpose evil. We need to turn away from that evil. Now, it's absurd to say, don't do this, and nothing else. We need to have things to do instead. How do we replace that? So how do we accomplish turning away from evil is to, next line in that verse, to do good. When we turn away from evil, we're presented with opportunities to do good. It's often a case where doing good was always an option, but with our heart's purpose for evil, we don't see the chance to do good. Your, your mind is set on doing evil, of purposing evil. You're setting out to deceive somebody. You never see the option of simply doing good. And that's what, that's what the writer Peter, but God says, is turn away from evil and do good instead. And once you turn away from evil and you purpose to do good, you see opportunities to do good. Seek peace, the next um, um, instruction in this little verse. Uh, once we set our mind and hearts on doing good, we can now seek peace. Honestly, when, we're, when we are purposed for evil, when we're purposed to deceive, we don't want to seek peace. We want to conquer. We want to force someone else down. We want to defeat somebody. But when we turn and we start to do good, we start to seek peace. We start to seek peace instead of confrontation, instead of discord. Um, we look for peace, whereas before we might seek an opportunity to deceive. We look for, we look for an opportunity to to take advantage of the situation instead of seeking peace. So then the next line is really interesting. He says, seek peace and pursue it. Go after it. 
When we seek, when we pursue peace, we not only look for peace, but we're aggressive in finding it. Searching for ways for peace is more than just stumbling across it. Pursuing peace means you set your mind to look at peace as the best option in every situation. You look at a situation, you go, how can I resolve this in peace? How can I turn this into, into peace? And as I said before, so far, I haven't given you anything more than a self-help book. Or, or, or a bad song. You know? <laughs> um, it's just saying, don't do this, do that. Um, so how can we turn from evil? How can we do good and how we can pursue peace? I'm glad you asked. Thanks. Colossians 3.2. If you go ahead and throw Colossians up on the board, Emily. Thank you. Um, there we go. So um, we can just leave that up for a little bit. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. It changes where our mind dwells. What's important to you? Setting your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Normally, as humans in our flesh, we set our sights very low. Think about where you set your sights. Seconds on dessert. Or, in the case of what we've been talking earlier, getting an advantage over somebody, no matter the cost to them. When our minds are focused on the things of the world, we set our sights low. We prioritize the things of earth, the things of the flesh, the things of here and now, instead of the things of God. And the world helps us do that. The world helps us set our sights low. Um, most sites online, most social media, all you computer whizzy people in the room, you know that most of those sites run on what's called an algorithm. It learns what, it sees what you're doing and then tailors itself to that. Kathy and I are looking to buy a new car. I go to a couple of dealers' web pages, and now all the ads online are for new cars. I'm getting ads for a dealer in Virginia to buy a car. Because the algorithm says, look, Dan's looking for a car. So it feeds me what I'm searching for. The world works very hard to keep our minds on the things of the earth. It's our responsibility to set our minds on the things above. And how do we do that? How do we set our minds on things above? Like the algorithm, search for things of God. Search for the things of God. Set or commit your mind to the things of God. So I saw again online, just before Christmas, some lady said she was taking her husband's phone and searching for all the things that she wanted for Christmas. So all the ads for the things she wanted showed up on his phone. 
So imagine searching for the things of God in your life. Not necessarily on your phone, but searching for the things of God, what's going to happen? You're going to start seeing the things of God. Setting our mind on the things of God, or as Paul wrote, the things that are above, the way he put it, it changes our perspective. It changes how we look at the world around us. We begin to realize that the wicked, deceitful actions we're inclined to pursue in our sin aren't the good things in life. Overwhelmingly, the people of the world aren't happy. They don't feel well about life. They're the things sin has said is important. Sin's telling us that these wicked things are important. And our change comes through intentional action. A change that is an intentional decision to follow the wisdom that God laid out for us. Colossians 3, down in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive. A compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. These are all attributes we want to see in others around us. We want other people to put those on as traits around us. That makes our life pleasant when there's nice people around us. We want people to put up with us. We want people to forgive us, overlook our unique characteristic traits, which are all the sins we do. Don't you think others want to see those traits in us as well? Don't you think they want those? Just think of our community when we all have these traits as a mark of our changed life in Christ. Imagine our community where everyone is bearing with one another, has kindness, humility, meekness, patience, compassionate hearts who care for each other. We're asked to put on these attributes, put on this way of living our lives because we are God's chosen ones. Put on then as God's chosen ones. That prefaces it. If you are God's chosen ones, put on these attributes. We're set apart. We're holy. We're loved by God. We're forgiven. Understand just the power of that. The current U.S. debt is over $30 trillion. You go to one of those debt clocks, it's like $33 trillion dollars. And the last number is just a blur because we're spending like $20 every millisecond or some absurd amount. $30 trillion is the U.S. debt. Imagine somebody paying that for us. Imagine somebody saying the U.S. debt is forgiven, wiped out. What could America do with $30 trillion and debt-free? 
How big is your debt? How big is your debt that Jesus Christ paid for on the cross? Imagine that that debt is forgiven, because it is. We're forgiven a great debt. Surely we can forgive others. And now that we're forgiven, what can we do that we're debt-free? And what we can do is have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. That's what we can do. For, verse 14 says, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love. It's a simple sentence. It's really basic. It's what is love. Let's define love a little bit. To start with, can you have love if there aren't others to love? Yeah, but um, this is put on love for others. You love other people. Without love, these other traits can't stand when things get hard. Can you have meekness when everything's easy? Sure. Sure. Can you be can you have humility and compassionate heart when things are going well and easy? But when things go hard, love is what allows us to to continue in these things. It's only through love that all of those can be bound together. Love is the greatest force in the universe. Light, dark, heat, cold, money, power. These things can't save you from eternal death. Those can't save you from condemnation. Only love, the love that God has for you. So, I grew up in the church. First verse, most of us, if you grew up in the church, what's the first verse you memorize? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's basic, and it's perfect in encapsulating what is that love. You were going to die. God sent his Son to die in your place. So you can have eternal life. That's our example of love. Go on to verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do to everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It starts with, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ is because we have peace with Christ. We can't have the peace of Christ if we don't have peace with Christ. Peace with God is how we are able to, to have peace with man. Without peace with God, you cannot have peace with man. Whenever there's a doubt about what is the right direction, and one way your peace is ruined, but another your peace is kept, 
Choose the things that make for peace, whether for yourself or for others. Let God's peace rule in your heart. When a Christian loses their peace, it's an awful proof that they have lost something that has given away to evil. A great commentator said that line. I'm not that smart to use words that big. But the idea that when we lose our peace, we've lost something else, and evil has gained ground. And then here's, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. The idea is that the word of Christ is comfortable in your heart. It's been cold lately, right? And it's the holidays. And Kathy curls up in her chair with her big giant blanket and a cup of hot tea. And summer bells bark. And, uh, and she dwells. She's comfortable there. That's the idea. That the word of God is comfortable dwelling in your heart. And you're comfortable with God's word being there. It's not that greeting relative that stays a couple days too long. But it's the word of God dwelling in our hearts. And that's how walking in the Lord becomes our nature. When God's word's in our heart, that is what starts to become expressed with our tongue. Remember the tongue? Speaking evil and deceitful things, being that little rudder that's guiding the great ship? Take yourself out of the captain's chair in that great ship and put God's word there. God's word is now steering your tongue. It's steering your heart. These become the tools to accomplish the, that piece on how to have a good year. The idea of God's word, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, that, that the words of the Lord become our nature, it, it becomes who we are instead of something that we put on and take off. When we continue to think of God's word and God's truth as something that we pick up and put down, it's never part of our nature. It's always external to us. But when it's in our heart, it becomes our nature. So let me go to Galatians uh, uh, chapter 5. Go ahead and, oh, you already got it up. Excellent. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Um, Jonathan's already read through this. Walking by the Spirit gives us a right view of the desires of the flesh. We have God's Word dwelling in us, how we look at the desires of the flesh changes. You start to see those different. The desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh are against each other. That's what Paul says right here. They're at war. And they're at war over you. You're the battlefield between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. So we look at this list that Paul gives us of the desires of the flesh. 
uh, or as he writes, the works of the flesh, and that's important because this is what your flesh is doing, because that's what the flesh does, that's what the world does. The Greek word translated flesh means all that a man is and is capable of as a sinful human being apart from the unmerited intervention of God's Spirit in his life. It shows man is a fallen being who desires even at best sin, and it is stained, stained by it. Excuse me. That flesh is what man is apart from God's grace in his life. The best you can be is evil, wicked, with deceit in your heart when you're in the flesh. The works of the flesh are sin, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Those are not the marks of a good year. When you look back on last year, hopefully you don't say it was full of fits of anger. It was full of dissension. It was full of envy. Those aren't marks of a good year. Are those the things you put in a Christmas newsletter? Some of you put on Christmas newsletters, and I, I love reading your Christmas newsletters. Um, but uh, those, those just aren't the things we want to put in there. Notice the difference here in, uh, in Galatians. Paul talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. He wasn't just being poetic. There's a difference. There's a difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Works of the flesh indicate that this is the result of a life of sin apart from God, apart from walking in the Spirit, apart from having God's Word dwell in our hearts. We do sin really well on our own. And those are the works of our flesh. Paul uses the plural when he describes living life after the flesh. He says, works of the flesh, but he uses the singular fruit, not fruits, of the Spirit. Because in the big picture, the Spirit has one work to do in all of us. This is universal. This is open to everybody. This is available to all of us. These aren't the gifts of the Spirit, which we've talked about before, which are distributed on an individual basis. Um, um, by the will of the Spirit, and that's something for every Christian. Paul isn't speaking of a series of fruits that could be shared around so one believer has one, another has something different, kind of like a, a fruit of the Spirit potluck or something. Rather, he's referring to a cluster, that these are all qualities, all to be manifested in each believer. All of these are for you. The gifts of spirit are inevitably talents and gifts that are for using for the entire body. But the fruit of the spirit is something to nourish our soul. It's something that is good for us. Uh, looking at a couple of these, love here is the Greek, Greek word agape. We're all familiar with that word. Agape describes this different kind of love, and we, we've talked about it before. It's really complicated. When I was 
kid growing up in the 70s listening to sermons, they broke it down and it was like a one sentence for, for you know, agape and philo and, and it was simplistic. And then the more we learned about Greek, the more it became complex. Agape love is a love more of decision than of a spontaneous heart. It's as much a matter of the mind than the heart because it chooses to love the undeserving. It's a principle by which we deliberately live. We deliberately live with agape love for those who are the undeserving. God has an agape love for us because we don't deserve the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Joy. Joy is one of the greatest marketing strategies ever employed by Satan. He employs it to position the kingdom of Satan as a place where the fun is and the kingdom of God is the place of gloom and misery. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And this is more than just the thrill of an exciting experience or a wonderful set of circumstances. It's a joy that can abide and remain, even when the circumstances themselves seem terrible. Paul knew this joy personally because he could sing while manacled in a dark prison dungeon. He's chained to the floor in a dungeon in the dark, and he's singing praises to God. That's joy. Peace. We talked about peace a little before. This is the peace. This is peace with God and peace with people. It's what's called a positive peace. It's filled with blessing and goodness, not simply the absence of fighting. We tend to, to devolve the word peace to there's not fighting going on. But it's so much more than that. It's blessing. It's goodness. It's a higher peace than what comes when everything's just calm. When a conflict is settled. This is a peace of God which surpasses all understanding, it says in Philippians 4.7. It's peace. It's awesome. But it surpasses our understanding because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because we're struggling as a sinful being with peace with God. How can that be? We can have that because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Patience means that one can have love, joy, and peace over a period of time, even when people and events annoy them. I love that description. Do you notice that these tend to not be circumstantial? This is not environmental. It's not based on depends. Do you love me? Depends. Yeah. What'd you cook for dinner? Is my laundry done? Did you do something nice for me? Instead, it's yes. God loves us unconditionally, and that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness and goodness. Now, those two words are really closely connected. 
the only real difference is goodness also has with it the idea of generosity. Imagine kindness that's generous. And I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about gifts. I'm talking about your kindness is generous. That kindness flows out indiscriminately. You are kind. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Faithfulness. The idea is that the Spirit of God works faithfulness, faithfulness in us, both faithful to God and to people. The ability to serve God faithfully through many years, many decades, through an entire life, through temptations and difficulties of life, is not something that we achieve by heroic virtue. It comes from the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit that we can have that sort of faithfulness. It's, it's great to hear stories and biographies of, of Christians who suffer in, in other places remaining faithful through, through terrible circumstances. It's not just they're faithful because they have an easy life. They're faithful because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. Um, gentleness, the word, uh, has the idea of being teachable. Not having a superior attitude. Not demanding one's rights. Uh, it isn't timid, timidity, being timid, or, or being passive. Barclay said, it's the quality of the man who is always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. Is there times you should be angry? Sure. Jesus in the temple, cleaning out the temple. Um, but, uh, but you are gentle um, in, in how you live. Uh, fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The world, the world knows about self-control, but almost always for a selfish reason. The world has self-control because it's in its self-interest. Um, it knows self-discipline and denial uh, uh, will go for themselves, but self-control of the spirit works on behalf of others. Uh, a preacher once said that he some, sometimes denies himself an ice cream sundae to exercise self-control. But that's denial for himself, not for the benefits of others. Except possibly his wife, who doesn't end up with a fat husband. But, um, but self-denial isn't necessarily self-control. Because self-control, as a fruit of the Spirit, is bigger than just yourself. Your self-control is something that you express outwardly to others. He says, uh, against, the, uh, against such there is no law. Paul wrote with both irony and understatement when he said that. There's certainly no law against love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But more so, if a person has the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't need the law. You don't need the law to tell you that you should be, you should have joy, you should have peace, you should be kind. Because if you have the fruit of the Spirit, you already fulfill those attributes. And that is liberty. And that's one of the greatest gifts of the fruit of the Spirit, is that liberty. Liberty through the fruit of the Spirit is a way to have a good year. Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly is a way to have a great year. Letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts is a way to have a great year. Setting our mind on the things of God, pursuing peace, doing good, turning away from evil and controlling our tongue is the way to have a good year. How do we have a great year? Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let his word dwell in your heart and setting our mind on the things of God. When God calls us to do something, he gives us the tools to succeed. When he tells us to stop something or to turn away from something, he gives us a different and a better path. And that's how we can have a great year to follow his path. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of the fruit of the Spirit that we can enjoy by following your word, letting your word dwell in us, and, and having love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.